Hi, everyone. It's so good to have you here, and it is so good to be a part of one church that meets in four locations. And so I want to give a huge shout-out to people in Ajax, obviously, and to everyone meeting in Port Perry, in Bowmanville, and in Pickering. It's really great to have you joining us today. And then also, if you are joining us online later, at some point later, uh, we're so happy that you tuned in, and we hope that the teaching, the week-by-week teaching here, is impacting you in a positive way and helpful and influential in your life. A young man and a young woman got married, and when they came home from their honeymoon, uh, the, the woman, the young bride, took this uh, chest, this crate, this metal crate, and she put it up in their closet up on the top shelf, and she put it up there, and she said to her husband, uh, please, uh, I'm going to ask you never to open uh, the crate, never to open that chest, and so he agreed uh, because... You know, early on in the marriage, guys, we're always more compliant, right? So he agreed uh, and said, yep, absolutely, I'll, I'll happily do that. And so, uh, you know, throughout the years, um, they, he was intrigued. He was always intrigued by what was in this container, what was in this chest, and, and why she didn't want him to look at it. But he honored the commitment that he'd made to her, and he honored the request that she had made for him never to open this thing up. Well, years turned into decades, and this couple lived together, and and he remained true to his word. And then one day, the woman fell very, very ill, and she was hospitalized. And her husband was with her in the hospital, and he came home to grab her some of her personal effects to make her more comfortable in the hospital. And as he was getting some of her stuff out of the closet, he noticed the chest up in the top shelf, and he thought, you know, maybe now's the time. Maybe now's the time when I can look into it. But I want to honor her request and my word to her, so I'll just take it to the hospital. So he grabbed some of her effects, and he grabbed this chest, and he took it to the hospital. And he went to his wife, and he said, Honey, like, I really think now's the time. I mean, you're, you're quite sick, and I've, I've been faithful all through the years, but surely now is the time when you'll allow me to look inside this thing. Well, she thought for a moment, and she said, Yeah, I think you're right. I think now's the time. Go ahead. You go ahead and open it. And so with a sense of real intrigue and apprehension and a little bit fearful, he just unlatched it and he opened up this thing that he'd never been able to look into. And on the left-hand side, there were two crocheted dolls. And on the right-hand side, there was a million dollars. And he said, what's going on? And his wife said, well, the day that we got married, my mom's gave me this piece of advice and said, you get a crate and... Fill it every time you're mad with him. You should go into the bedroom. And in order to cool down, what you should do is you should crochet a doll. And then that way it'll just help you simmer down. Like only when you're really ticked at him, do this. But that'll help you like calm down and just capture perspective and stuff like that. And so he said, honey, I'm, thank you for sharing. And, and I'm, like, I'm thrilled that over the years, over all these decades, like there's only two dolls in the chest. That's outstanding. Where did the million dollars come from? And she said, well, that came from the sales of all the other dolls. (laughs) So today we're starting a three-week series on marriage. (laughs) Oh, man. 
three weeks. Uh, I mean, I, you need to hear this really clearly. We could spend a whole year on this subject matter, but we're, we're taking three weeks. We, we felt compelled and led by God to try and encourage our whole church, our whole congregation in this great subject of marriage because as those of you who are married know that it is full of uh, real high highs and real low lows at times. It's full of joy and it's full of sorrow. And so as we a- approach this enormous subject over these three weeks, I just want to help us get some perspective on what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. We're focusing on the practical, pragmatic side. This is not going to be necessarily a theological defense of marriage. Uh, We believe that God is the one who designed marriage and that it was God's intent all along for marriage and we stand very squarely behind that and so we'll be coming from a biblically informed Christian worldview as we look at marriage. But we are not therapists, we're not doctors, we're not counselors, we're pastors. And, and we're going to come at it from a pastoral viewpoint to talk to you and to help each one of you who are married uh, in this whole subject to give you some practical advice and, and helpful encouragement as you seek to do life together. Now, we, we all know that there are no silver bullets in marriage. And so I I wouldn't have an expectation that throughout these three weeks, there's going to be just that one moment where you're going to go, oh, that cleared it all up for me. I've got this whole marriage thing down pat now. I don't think that that's going to happen. And and I want to say, you know, very clearly that throughout today's sermon, I'm going to refer to married people, but I, I will hopefully remind myself that now and then I need to say, whether you are single, dating, engaged, married for a month, or married for 50 years, uh, that we can all glean something out of what we're going to talk about today. And throughout this series, I think there will be something for every one of us. So whether you are married or intend to be married or would love to be married, I hope that you'll be encouraged. And that's why we've called this series Together. It's a series on marriage and community because as I'm going to say in just a few minutes, it's important. Marriage is a private matter, but also it matters to the whole community. It matters to each and every one of us as we fellowship together and as we do life and faith together. Now here at Sanctus Church, we believe in And we honor marriage. We believe in the sanctity of marriage. And we believe that marriage was God's idea. And we believe that marriage was God's design. And so we believe that God our Father has something to say to those of us who are married or those of us who want to be married. But you also need to hear me really clearly. We also honor and respect singleness, whether by choice or by circumstances. And as we approach this today, I am fully aware that some of you have had wonderful experiences in marriage and of marriage. And that for so many others, there is a, a neg- there's some negative overtones to marriage. That perhaps you've been in a marriage that has been difficult or you have witnessed a marriage that has been difficult. And so throughout this whole series, we're trying to hold these in tension as each one of us will come to share on what we believe Uh, God would have us to share to us as a community, but understand that we don't understand your particular circumstances. I don't know the state of every marriage in this church. So we're going to come and we're going to try to encourage and to support and instruct 
our whole church in the lifelong journey that we call marriage. So whether you are single, you're dating, you're engaged, or you're married, I hope that you'll lean in today and in the next two weeks as we look at marriage and why it matters to our whole community. Now, there's been so much written and there's so much material out there on the subject of marriage that I'm taking a bit of a calculated risk this morning and coming at the subject of marriage from a little bit different angle than I normally would have if we were spending a longer time in it. See, I know that many of you have done a lot of reading. You've done your research. You have, you have talked together. Some of you have been in therapy together. You've had counseling sessions. And all of those things are, are great and they're wonderful. And there's so much material out there that for this morning as we kick off this series, I thought I would come at it from a slightly different angle and from a passage of scripture that's traditionally not the starting point where we start in this discussion of marriage. Often God would call special people, we read it throughout the Old Testament, who, who were called to do some extraordinary things for God. These people would become spokespersons for God, communicating God's message to his people. Many times they would uh, tell of future events that were yet to come, and so we call them prophets. But a vast majority of the time, they would just be simply communicating the relationship between God and his people and reminding the people of God how God feels about them, about his great love for them, and about their responsibility individually and corporately in their covenant relationship back to him. But some of the time, God would ask some of the prophets to do very unusual things. He would ask them actually to become object lessons to get God's point across in a very creative, very unusual, very unlikely way. Not all the time, but some of the time. Isaiah, for example, is a very well-known prophet who preached over a long, long stretch of time. But in Isaiah chapter 20, we see that God asked Isaiah for a period of three years to take all of his clothes off and to walk around naked for three years communicating the message of God. Unusual. The prophet Ezekiel was told by God to lie on his left side for 390 days and then to flip over onto his right side for another 40 days because he was trying to communicate through Ezekiel a particular message to the people. And so he used an object lesson, a very unusual object lesson. In another instance, Ezekiel was asked to read a whole scroll to the people. And then after he finished reading the scroll, God asked him to eat the scroll. Again, just an unusual approach. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because the message that God had uh, uh, Jeremiah to bring to the people was a message of sadness and misery and judgment because of the broken relationship between God and his people. And so Jeremiah went around mourning and weeping and God used his mourning and his weeping to communicate above and beyond the words that Jeremiah used. And so the prophet that we're going to meet today was asked to communicate to people in a way that, quite frankly, is almost unbelievable. And yet the message in the object lesson is one of the most touching and beautiful in all of the Old Testament. Hosea's somber, steady, loving example with his wife Gomer is a recipe to you and I overcoming mediocrity in our marriages. Now, 
some of you have never read the book of Hosea, and so I, I feel compelled to give a little bit of background, or if it's been a long time since you've read Hosea, just to kind of remind you of some of the real highlights of the book. The kingdom of Israel is divided to 10 king, kingdoms in the north and two in the south, never God's intention, never God's design. And the people of Israel were living this syncretistic lifestyle. They were taking uh, their Jewish faith, the laws and the commandments of God, and they had mixed them with all of the other uh, pagan practices of the nations around them. And God was just not pleased with how they were doing that and how they were unfaithful to him. And so Hosea is called to be a prophet of God, but a prophet with a twist. Hosea marries a woman called Gomer. Now, it's unclear at the start of the book of Hosea if Gomer is already a temple prostitute when he marries her or whether she's just sleeping around with multiple other men or whether she goes into becoming a prostitute after they've been married, that we're a little fuzzy on some of the details, but, but the circumstances just can't be missed. He's invited and asked by God to marry a prostitute. They have three children. The first child that they have is a son. And God says, call your son Jezreel. Not a bad name. I wouldn't mind if my parents had called me Jezreel. Except when we begin to understand what the name Jezreel means. It is a place of slaughter. It is a place where this catastrophe happened. It'd be like modern day calling your kid Chernobyl or Twin Towers. Just not a good name for a kid. And then next after their son, they have a daughter and they called her Lo Ruhama, which means she is not loved. And they have another son and they call him Lo Ami, which literally is, you're not mine. Gomer continues to chase after other men and eventually she leaves Hosea and she does find herself ultimately in the slave market because she is no use to anyone any longer and her owners, those who are her handlers, have her in the slave market and they're just trying to catch a price for her. And Hosea goes into the market and he sees his wife in the slave market and he buys her back for the full market price. Hosea renews his vows with her and they live together again as husband and wife. So let's look at Hosea as an unlikely starting point for you and I as we talk and as we think about marriage because I think there are some things in this prophet's life and how God used him and how he lived out the message but also the method that God chose to use with him. I think there are some things that you and I can learn if we're single, we're dating, we're engaged, or we're married, and whether we've been married a year or whether we've been married 50 years. Here's what we learn from Hosea. The first thing I think is this, that dreams don't always come true. I think that the Hollywood love stories and, and the movies and the fairy tales that we grew up with as children have subtly led us to believe that dreams always come true, but they don't. I don't think that Hosea as a young teenage guy growing up thought that one day he would marry the person that he married. And no doubt there are people in this room and there are people watching and listening online that the, what you ended up with and the circumstances that maybe you find yourself in now were not the dream that you had a year ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, or even 50 years ago. 
When I was in seminary, I met this young guy. He was this well-built, handsome guy who had so much going for him, and he was in ministry and getting trained for ministry. And when I got to know him a little bit in seminary, you know, I was just asking him about a bit of his life story, and he told me that he had previously been married. And I said, oh, so you're not married anymore? And he said, no. He said, I'm, I'm divorced now. And I said, can I ask why? He said, of course. He said, my wife and I were like sweethearts, teenage sweethearts, and we ended up getting married, and, and early on in their marriage... He was working his summer job because he was going to school in the fall and there was an industrial accident in his job and he lost the lower part of one of his arms. And his wife couldn't handle it. It wasn't what she signed up for. It wasn't her dream. And so they split as a couple. Dreams don't always come true, my friends, in marriage. And some of you know that all too well. Hosea chapter 2, verses 2 and 5 say this. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. And she said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Can you imagine how Hosea felt? Some of you actually know how Hosea felt. See, all of us have dreams and an image of what our ideal partner, our ideal spouse is going to look like, how they're going to behave, what they'll look like, the way life is going to go for you. And especially if you find yourself in that single, that dating, or maybe even in that engaged phase right now, you have all of these dreams because all of your future is ahead of you. I remember when my wife Jen and I started dating, I said to her like, what was your, what's your dream ideal man? And she said, oh, Easy. All my life as a young girl growing up, I thought, tall, dark curly hair with a mustache. I got one out of three. And if you're a baseball player, that's actually pretty good. See, these mental images that we all have are called expectations. They're expectations. And we all hold them. I remember I had this great conversation years ago with a guy who had been in ministry for 40 years and he was an unbelievable Bible teacher. I respected and learned so much from him. But on the side, him and his wife would run these marriage seminars where they would get couples together for a weekend and they would help them discover what the Bible says about marriage and they would do all this interactive talking and, and study together in order to help marriages. Not necessarily marriages that were in trouble, but some were in trouble, but it was just marriage enrichment. And I said to him, can you tell me, after 40 years of experience and after hanging out with hundreds, maybe even thousands of couples, what's the number one marriage record? And, and I'm inside, I'm thinking, oh, I know what he's going to say. I know it's communication. It's got to be communication. He didn't say communication. I said, well, if it's not communication, there's finances. Oh, yeah, people will battle over finances. For sure, that's got to be a marriage record. He didn't say finances. I said, oh, well, here we go. It's got to be sex then. If you roll those two out, then that's, what it, that's the marriage record for sure. No, he didn't say that. And he didn't say a whole host of other things. He said to me, the number one marriage record is unfulfilled or unmet expectations. And that's what leads to all of the other things. Because you take two people and you bring them together and we have dreams, we have expectations. And all of our dreams don't necessarily come true. So what do you do 
when your dreams don't come true. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, we see the anger and the frustration of Hosea. It is building and it is growing, and he's so disappointed that he wants to write off his wife because of all that she has done. But then there's this turning point at verse 14 through to 23 where all of a sudden he now begins to think of her differently as God begins to speak to him about his wife, Gomer. So what do you and I do when dreams don't come true, when our expectations are not met? If unrealized or unfulfilled expectations are a marriage wrecker, then doesn't it make a whole lot of sense that we talk about them with each other? I've been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years now. And over and over again, I'm shocked at how many couples never talk about their expectations with one another. And if we don't talk about them, how can the other person, you know, hope to fulfill those? How can they hope to say, A, I agree with your expectation, it is a reasonable expectation, and B, yes, I think I can fulfill that expectation. But if we harbor these things and we never talk about them, and they fester for years and even decades, then we can find ourselves in trouble. The second thing that I think we can learn from Hosea is this, that love is a feeling to be learned. You know what I'm finding the older I get? That life is more about choices than it is about other things, and especially in my walk with Jesus. Life is all about choices and commitments that we make. I love it when one author said this. He said, we become what we're committed to. We become what we're committed to. So if I want to be a great athlete, then what I need to do is get rid of all kinds of distractions and other things that consume my mind, consume my attention, consume my resources, and I need to focus on whatever that sport is and all, everything has to go in to helping me become that great athlete or actor or doctor or politician or singer or whatever it happens to be. And it's the same with our walk with Jesus and it's the same in our walk with our spouse. We become what we're committed to. In Hosea chapter two and verse 14, this turnaround verse that happens, Hosea says this, therefore I am, going, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. See, so many people in our culture are waiting for the warm fuzzy feelings. They're waiting actually for them to return I mean, hopefully at some point in time, maybe in your dating and hopefully when you were engaged and, and hopefully in the early parts of your marriage, these warm, fuzzy feelings were there a lot. But, but maybe now those are gone and, and you're making poor choices because you're kind of waiting for the warm fuzzies to come back. I mean, there's two ways that you can make the warm fuzzies come back. One of them is just to eat tons of spicy food. <laughs> just eat tons and tons of really spicy food and the... It'll, you'll feel it down in here. The other one is you have to just be prepared to wait a lifetime and hope that they'll come back. But there is an alternative. We can make some choices. We can make a decision regardless of our feelings. We can make a decision. Hosea chapter three and verse one says this. The Lord said to me, go show your, sorry, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Love, friends, is about choices. It's an act of the will. It's a decision that you and I make. See, I don't think Hosea was having the warm fuzzies at this particular time. Because of all that Gomer is doing and because of all that she is throwing in his face. But he made a choice. God asked him to make a choice to pursue her, to chase her, to go after her. Now, why did God ask him to do this? Well, I think what God is doing is God is showing us that if we want a desired outcome, if we want to see something happen, it is not based on feelings, it is not just based on the circumstances, but if you want a desired outcome, then you have to make choices that move you towards that desired outcome. And so bit by bit, you have to make decisions that will lead you to the place that you want to be. Well, how could God ask us to do that? I mean, Lord, don't you know what I've gone through? I have every right. Oh, yeah. And that's why I love that Romans 5, 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God had every right to say, that Dave guy has broken my law. That Dave guy has offended my holiness. And so I'm just going to stop back here until Dave gets his whole act together, until Dave gets right enough, until Dave gets clean enough and pure enough, and once he's fully clean and fully pure, then I'll maybe invite him into a relationship. No, that's not the good news of the Christian faith. The good news of the Christian faith is that while we were yet sinners, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. And in that Yes, salvation, but this is what's happening with Hosea and Gomer. God is using Hosea as an object lesson that we don't sit back and say, I have every right to, and then fill in the blank, but we make choices that move us towards the desired outcome, and that hopefully is a restoration, a renewal, a revival of that relationship that we maybe once had with our spouse. Well, another thing that I think we see in Hosea is that everyone is watching. I am sure, I have no doubt that Gomer and Hosea would have been on the front page of the Jerusalem Enquirer on a number of occasions. Because you see, what happens privately in our own marriages ultimately ends up impacting all of us. I loved it in the Galatians series. Early on in the Galatians series, Pastor John said this. He said, personal holiness really, really matters to us. My personal holiness matters because of my relationship with God. Your personal holiness matters because of your relationship with God. But here's where we take it to a whole next level is my personal holiness matters to you and your personal holiness matters to me because we are in relationship with one another. We are in community with one another. And the same is true of marriage. If Jen and I are struggling in our marriage and we are not getting the help that we need and we're not living the way God intended us for, to live and if I'm being an idiot and being a jerk in the midst of our marriage, not only does it impact us, but it impacts our four married kids, it impacts our five grandchildren, it impacts our staff here at the church and it impacts all of you because you're my brothers and sisters and we're in community together and that's why this is so important. It's not just about us. Yeah, it's not just about us and there are so much of marriage that is private and should be private but if we think it doesn't impact those around us so many of you can say I know it impacts because of what you've experienced personally 
And because everyone was watching, God asked Hosea to search out Gomer and win her back. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, you're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. See, the story of Hosea and Gomer is not just about a man and his wife and their struggles, although it's, it's, it's helpful for us today as we talk about this, but, but you can't miss the greater and the bigger meaning behind this and why God uses this object lesson of this couple to communicate to you and I. The simple message of the book of Hosea is this, is that God is Hosea and me and you are Gomer. That's the message of the book. And we must not forget that. We can never lose sight of that, that God is demonstrating his love to us through this couple. But there's still so much that we can learn. And the reason that this is important is, as I've said, because of our relationships. But here's one of the things that causes me concern is that sometimes we see no discernible differences between Christian marriages and those who don't claim the name of Jesus in their marriages. Sometimes Christian guys, the way they talk about their Christian wives is no different than the way non-Christian guys talk about their non-Christian wives. And some of the ways that Christian women behave around their husbands and their families is no different than the way non-Christian women behave and conduct themselves around their non-Christian families. And this ought not to be so in the church of Jesus Christ. See, Hosea is a threat to mediocrity in marriage because his challenge to us as followers of Jesus is to be a countercultural outpost, modeling marriage as it should be and was intended to be so that the whole world can see it. And those with an impoverished understanding of marriage will be able to grasp it only when they see the real thing in action. And that's me and you. So let me end this morning in this kickoff with four really practical things. These are, these are 20-something years of pastoral experience in ministry, but also 39 years of marriage. And as I like to say to my wife all the time, even though she gets mad at me, we've been married for 39 years, and it's been 36 of the happiest years of my life. <laughs> I have permission in case you're wondering. Here's the first thing that I want to just leave you with in a couple of minutes. I think we need to live with renewed commitment towards one another. Again, whether you're single, dating, engaged, or married a year or 50 years, at the appropriate levels, at the appropriate times, in the appropriate ways, in our relationships, particularly in marriage, we need to be committed, deeply committed to each other. Let me encourage you, if you are married today, to renew your commitment with your spouse, spouse, to tell them in creative and different ways, to show them that no matter what, you'll always be there to them. I had a friend who used to say this all the time. Hey, honey, I told you that I loved you on our wedding day, and if it changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> not a good idea. Probably not one of the wiser guys that I know. See, there are people that think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And as Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback says, the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is always greener where you water it. So we need to renew our commitment, men and women. 
renew our commitment to each other. Dating, single, engaged, married a year or married 50 years. Doesn't matter. Renew our commitment to one another. Second thing is we need to spend time together. One of the things that I'm actually frankly disturbed about and surprised about is how little time often couples spend together alone as couples. I know that there are seasons in life where that is much more difficult. Trust me, we had four boys, nine years apart, and there were definitely times when it was very difficult. In fact, we would even try to get away for an evening together or an overnight together, and a lot of people won't answer your call when you say, hey, how would you like to babysit our four boys overnight? This was the day before cell phone, before, you know, they just, the people didn't answer the call. So Jen and I had to get creative. We tried as best as we could for every year of our marriage, every year of our marriage, we tried to go on one marriage retreat a year if we could swing it. And we tried really hard. We would forgo other things to make that happen. See, before the kids came along, we were a couple. And then there's this season, <laughs> and some of you know that, you know, you thought they were gone and then they come back again, right? You know, <laughs> we've done that too. But now, now we are a couple again. There's just the two of us living in the house. And, and it's that in-between time that scares me the most. Because at the start, usually things are really great and they're good, and, but you're learning lots, but they're generally good. But then life happens for like 20-something years and then all of a sudden the kids are all gone and you're like, who are you? And why are you still here? <laughs> Jen and I had friends and they told us, I think they wore it as a bit of a badge of honor. For us, it was a terrible warning sign. They had three children and they said in the 13 years that they had children, both of them had never been away alone together from their kids ever in 13 years. Not good, not healthy. Number three, I think we need to grow in our understanding of each other. With the passage of time, I hope that you're getting to know your spouse better. Certainly, if you're dating, this is super important for you. You better know that person you're dating, and you better know them well, and you better ask all of your questions. And if you're engaged, you better really know each other well. And when you get married, the knowing each other shouldn't stop. And today, we have no excuses. This is not automatic. This takes effort. There are lots of things that you have to do. You need, to, you need to know what your spouse's love language is. Before I read that book, I used to buy Jen gifts. And she would just kind of go, oh, that's really nice. She was, she was respectful. And then I read the book, and then we talked about it, and then I found out that I could save myself a ton of dough. <laughs> because her love language is time spent. That's cheap. <laughs> but I didn't know, and now I know, and it changed everything. There's things like the Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram 7. I'm the fun guy. You're all welcome to come over to our house this afternoon. The whole, everybody, come over to our house. I'm married to an Enneagram 6. Ooh, she makes fear-based decisions. Mm, maybe this is not going to work. Maybe you all shouldn't show up. But here's the point. We know what we are, and we know what each other is. And at times, I take the lead, and at times, she takes the lead. Why? Because it's about us being together and being as effective as we can as a couple and about growing in our love for each other and seeing this thing through so that we end really well. 
when we go to meet Jesus. The fourth thing is this. We need to develop some good habits. Being proactive rather than reactive is so, it's just so important. And we, we slip into bad habits. None of us really intend to do these things. And the longer life goes on, the longer we slip into bad habits. Now, there are seasons when some things are simply much easier than they are in other seasons of life. It was much easier when Jen and I were first married and didn't have any children for those four wonderful, marvelous, unbelievable, perfect years um, where things like praying together, doing devotions together, doing those kinds of things was much, much easier. Now that our kids are all gone and out of the house, they are much, much easier for us to do now. But in those like 20-something years in between, mm, it was not that easy. It was pretty tough. There are seasons when some things come and they go And so you can't beat yourself up in the seasons, but you need to understand these things and we need to be proactive in them and we need to try and do our best to develop good habits around prayer, around devotions, about family devotions, about meal times and a whole host of other things. But if we're not intentional, it's just not gonna happen. And we might end up somewhere that we never intended to start to be. So as we finish sermon one in this series, let me encourage you with just two things. The first one is this. If you need help, please go and see a Christian counselor. If you need help in your marriage relationship, please, like please, please go see someone who can help you, who can really help you. There's no shame. There's nothing wrong with that. It's like seeing a doctor if something is broken physically. Go get the help that you need. We would love to help you as a church. <clears throat> Second thing is this. Next weekend here on our stage in Ajax, we're going to have a couple, Nikki and Scylla Lee. They are the authors and the founders of The Marriage Course. They also do a course on parenting and on pre-marriage. And uh, we would love you to take the marriage course when it's offered. And so all the information is going to be available on that. Come next week and hear them live. Um, But we would love you to take that. Your marriage doesn't have to be in trouble to go to that. You may be doing really, really well. I would still encourage you to go. Go as a connect group. Just go as a couple. Go maybe with some friends and build into and intentionally try to strengthen your marriage. Let me pray. So Lord, thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, I, I pray for some of my friends who are doing really, really well in their marriages. Would you continue to strengthen them and help them to grow and to thrive? But I also pray for some of my friends who maybe today this has been hard. So God, I pray that you would give them hope, that we speak to them by your spirit, and that you would renew their confidence in you. And Lord, I thank you for this example, this great example in scripture that you've given to us. It's gonna help me and it's gonna help us to think differently about our spouse, but also to think differently about you. <clears throat> so in the days and weeks and months and years ahead, Would you help us to really thrive, God, as we seek to follow you? We ask this in and through Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Uh, Today, yeah, thanks.
Today we're going to take communion. It's going to be passed to you. And we say this all the time here at our church, that if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ yet, just please let it go by. You don't know the one that it represents. But we're going to remember Christ's death and resurrection. We're going to remember when we eat the wafer or the cracker that Jesus' body was broken because of my sin and because of your sin. And that when we drink the cup, we're going to remember that his blood was shed because the scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus became the sacrificial lamb once for all time for me and for you. And so we're going to celebrate and rejoice. But I want to remind you what Paul says in the New Testament when he says that if you're at the table and you remember that you have something against another person or they have something against you, and particularly in light of this subject called marriage, even if your spouse is not here, would you maybe spend some time with Jesus and say, Jesus, maybe today's the day where I make the decision not to do what I was planning on doing. Maybe today's the day that I go humbly to my spouse, not to lord it over them, but to go, Jesus, like you as a servant, and say, we need to talk. We, we need some time. We need some help. Maybe as the Lord would prompt you that that could be a decision that maybe you would make today. I don't know all of your situations. I don't know all of your circumstances, but I know that God is still God. I know that he loves you and cares deeply about you and your spouse. And as a church, we are here to help in any way that we can. And so as these communion elements come, would you take them with a sense of hope and joy in your mind and in your heart because of all that Jesus has done on our behalf and what he can do in our future. So God, thank you for the juice that reminds us of the shed blood of Christ. Thank you for the cracker that reminds us of your broken body. We eat and we drink in celebration for all that you've done for us. Receive all of the glory, all of the praise, and all of the honor in your name. Amen.